Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 66, Shooting Scorsese. And joining us today is Benjamin Angrizano. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. How you doing? How you been? Good, good. Good. Excited to have another guest on the podcast. It's been a minute. Has it? How often do you do that? How often do you bring a new guest on the show? Every couple months or so. We try oh, wow. to. Wow. Last time we had a guest on, I lost my voice. So hopefully we will have better luck today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't throw all this on me. <laughs> so, Ben, you uh, requested for us to cover some movies by Martin Scorsese. And specifically, we'll be covering some of his earlier films from the 70s and one from 1980. Uh, and collaborations with Robert De Niro, which most of Scorsese's movies are. Yeah, a lot of them do have De Niro in them. Well, what I, I just started looking through when you asked me to do this, your... Uh, movies that you'd already covered, and I realized you you did not have any Scorsese, and so I... We did do Aviator. Oh. That's the only one that we have done. Oh, see, I want to talk about Aviator later, but okay. that's interesting. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, so we can totally, because that is in our canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about the man himself. Uh, Martin Scorsese was born in New York City, which is basically its own character in all three of these movies. Um, and uh, he was born in 1942, uh, studied film school at NYU, um, and then came up into the film school brats, as they are called, which is a group of filmmakers uh, who were just getting into the industry in the 70s. Basically, the first uh, group of filmmakers who like went through film school and so spent a lot of time studying films and foreign films and all of that, which is why the movement that they created, uh, which became known as the American New Wave, has a lot of European influence, uh, French New Wave influence. And the core of that group is generally regarded as Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. most of whom are still making stuff today, uh, which is kind of amazing, like how That's big true. of an influence this group of, uh, of filmmakers had. And then his first film was made uh, for uh, B-movie producer Roger Corman called uh, Boxcar Bertha in 1972. Uh, and then he followed that with Mean Streets in 1973, which we'll actually be talking about today. And that got him some attention and got him... Uh, some bigger budgets to do more movies afterwards. Um, and through, through uh, he, he made several more movies after that and uh, kind of had a, a little bit of struggle with depression and some drug addiction and stuff like that. And actually, uh, his friendship with Robert De Niro, which we'll ta- also be talking about today, um, and Robert De Niro pushing him to make the film Raging Bull based on uh, the autobiography of um, Jake LaMotta kind of, uh, I think he credits it as basically saving his life and pulling, getting him to, to pull his life back together um, and eventually led to a very long career, uh, which is still continuing today. Um, he just made a film you know, a couple years ago. Was Silence the last film he directed? I believe so. I saw that. In yeah, that was yeah. fairly, very recent though. Yeah. Um, and uh, aside from his contribution to uh, film as a whole, he also has a big contribution to uh, the preservation of film throughout history uh, because he founded um, the Film Foundation, which has a goal of taking old film, uh, important films that uh, were not 
kept up very well and making sure that they survive uh, for future generations. Uh, and we've talked about that a lot on the podcast before, but now we're actually talking about the man who created it. Um, but what are the films that we are talking about today specifically? You talking to me? I'm talking to any of y'all. Okay. <laughs> talking um, to me? Yeah, see, he got it. Um, no, so, yeah, we're talking about Mean Streets, 73. We're talking about Taxi Driver, uh, which is my favorite of this bunch, even though Raging Bull, the third film, is often noted as his greatest Magnum, film Magnum and Opus, like one of the yeah. top <laughs> ten greatest American films of all time yeah. or something. So um, I had not seen Raging Bull until this week, but I felt like it fit along with Mean Streets and Taxi Driver as the most appropriate. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. Um, I like to watch new movies. And, yeah. And yeah. ones I've already seen. So, yeah. Mean Streets was uh, his second feature that he ever did, and it was kind of a reaction to the much more artsy first film, uh, Boxcar Bertha. Um, and Mean Streets, as we will see, is much more grounded, much more gritty, much more yeah. real than uh, mm -hmm. uh, artsy early 70s film would be. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, Taxi Driver earned a Oscar nomination for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Original Score. Which is really good. That score is great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Bernard Herrmann, who I think died during production because uh, it says, like, dedicated to him or something at the end with his uh, um, birth and death year. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, and we've, we've talked about Bernard Herrmann a lot because he did... Um, I mean, a ton of scores, but uh, most notably, probably a large portion of Hitchcock's um, films. Okay. Uh, 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 Raging Bull also has a great soundtrack, and that ended with a dedication and a Bible verse. Um, yeah, yeah. That, um, I feel like, was more of like a personal touch from Scorsese, like I'm saying, uh, how the film kind of like had a big impact on him, on his personal life as well. Okay. Um, and the the screenwriter and Robert De Niro who kind of helped him get to that point. I mm. think that was more of a dedication to them. Separate from the film. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, Raging Bull won, uh, or actually it, it only won one Oscar, which is, uh, or two Oscars for best actor and best editing. Um, and editing is something we'll definitely be talking about today. Yeah. And it was also nominated for best picture, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, best director, best cinematography and best sound. So these movies were very notable right when they came out. Yeah, it lost Best Picture to Ordinary People, which oh, really? is not remembered as well as no. Raging Bull. It's kind of like broke back I literally don't to even crash know what or something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've heard of it a couple times, but I have a very fuzzy idea of what it actually is. Yeah, it was very controversial when it came out. A lot of people were not, uh, didn't, uh, not that they didn't appreciate it, but they didn't really like it very much. Uh -huh. A lot of people just it was it was too much. It's like for the them. crash controversy. <laughs> how green well, crash was is, well, crash how green is a bad was their movie, So that's <laughs> different. Yeah. All right, y'all. So the first Scorsese film we're doing to talk about today is Mean Streets from 1973, which is about a man who is caught between a lot of different opposing sides. It's um, the lead character is played by Harvey Cartel, and his name is Charlie. He's the nephew of a big-time uh, mafiosa, some some type of Italian crime family person, um, and has some responsibility within that organization. But at the same time, he is friends with this complete screw-up uh, small-time gambler who's in debt to everybody, played by Robert De Niro, named Johnny Boy. Um, he is also having an affair with Johnny Boy's cousin, 
uh, mm-hmm. Teresa, who has epilepsy and is kind of estranged from the rest of the community because of it. Um, they like to hang out in a bar uh, that is, or kind of a, it's not a bar, it's a strip club, who it, that is run by um, another one of Charlie's friends. And of course, another character who we see a lot is the loan shark who Johnny Boy owns uh, owes money to, who is a repeated character throughout the film. Um, and I will say, surprisingly, doesn't feel like that big of a villain until you start to get towards the end. Um, yeah, I, like I thought the, he was I just like kind of one up. of the gang. Well, he, and, he feels like one of the gang. And for the even first part. his turn towards, if you want to call it villainy, is not unwarranted. Like he's not yeah. being oh, yeah. unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, or antagonism. I should. You're say. almost on his side by the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in a way, they are all friends, but mm-hmm. you know, he's disrespected. Yeah. In front of the crew and over and over and, and over he's and over. A made again. guy, so what do yeah. you do? Yeah. Yeah, and this film is very much about Charlie trying to navigate all these tensions that are put on him. Um, his uncle uh, wants him to be responsible, doesn't want him hanging out with Johnny Boy, doesn't want him to date uh, Teresa, which is why they date in secret. Um, Johnny Boy but that, wants... But that reason is kind of, you know, because yeah. he, he calls her, like, screwed up in the head when she has epilepsy. So yeah. you're not really on his side Oh, for yeah, that. no, I mean, he's <laughs> a dick. Yeah. No. Johnny Boy's clearly more screwed up in the head. Oh, yeah. 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 And Johnny everybody. Boy both yeah. wants... <laughs> Yeah, Johnny Boy both wants Charlie's help and doesn't want Charlie's help at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants it on his well, own terms. Like, Yeah, he, he needs Charlie's help, but he's kind of denying that fact to himself. He he is he is making an impossible situation for Charlie. And Charlie is an incredibly religious person in this film. In fact, I think if not the opening scene, one of the opening scenes is in a church with him praying. And we hear him praying yeah. constantly throughout the film. Yeah. Um, and he's very much on a self-sacrificial bent. And partway through the film, you can tell he kind of decides that he's going to um, vindicate himself uh, or sacrifice himself or make up for the fact that he lives this mobster life um, by uh, doing everything he can to help Johnny Boy, even if it means sacrificing himself, um, which is not an easy task. Um, And of course, we won't go all the way to the end yet because we're still not in the spoilers section, but safe to say... Uh, the tension does not hold and something has to give and yeah. kind of everything gives all at once and to see where it lays at the end is uh, fascinating. That's why you watch the movie. So here's an interesting thing. He references uh, St. Francis a lot. Uh, do you, any of y'all know anything about St. Francis? Yep. Yeah, St. Francis, isn't that a, uh, a hospital like for kids? <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's the, the saint, patron saint. for Saint Day as a kid. No, it's the patron saint of what? Of uh, animals and um, against fire. I didn't know you could. Oh, and be he's a always doing the stuff with the fire. Something. Yeah, yeah, he's literally and figuratively playing with fire throughout the entire movie. Yes, but also, oh yeah, I he's always like, touching flames. I feel like he also sees Johnny as like a stray dog or something that he's trying to train and build up. Like he's this yes. guy who just walked into a forest and is going to like tame a grizzly bear or something. Yeah. But it's not how it works because Johnny doesn't want to be tamed and he feels, uh, he feels condescended to, to some extent. And that just makes everything worse. Yes. And Johnny keeps getting worse, which makes Charlie's situation worse. And yeah. Charlie won't give up on Johnny. And Johnny clearly needs to be left alone to face the consequences, his own consequences. Cause Charlie mm. gets dragged into those consequences yes, by not leaving him alone. He does. Um, you were talking about the ending, Alex, that we don't want to get into yet, but I will say something that ties into the ending is the opening line of the film, which is actually 
read over by Scorsese himself. Oh, really? Scorsese has a couple of interesting cameos in these movies. Okay. Um, some of them are obvious. Some of them the, are obvious. The, the one in Taxi Driver is obvious. Uh-huh. Um, and that was just because the guy who was supposed to do that didn't show up. Oh, really? And he was like, I'll do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the opening line is, you don't make up for your sins in church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. The rest is bullshit and you know it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, at the end of the movie, the hand with the gun that comes out of the back seat. Is that Scorsese? Is Scorsese. Wow. Yes. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what you were saying, Alex, about the end, I feel like it, it definitely bookends itself thematically. Um, so, yeah. And, and there's actually an alternate ending, a scene that was going to come after. Oh, really? The final scene that they cut, which we can get into when we talk about the ending. But Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that while we're here, like, this idea of this uh, tension between... Uh, violence and this violent lifestyle and spirituality seems like something that kind of follows Scorsese throughout his career. Even like we just talked about, his most recent film, Silence, uh, is all about religion yes. and persecution and violence and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so it's interesting that this, like what we can pretty much call like the first Martin Scorsese movie because it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of things that would follow him throughout his career yeah. uh, is already setting up those things, which we see a lot of times with directors. Uh, so it's really, it's cool to see that here with Scorsese too. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, guys? Seeing a really young Robert De Niro. Oh my god! I love He's young so De Niro. That's young. another reason I wanted, I wanted to do this is because that 70s, early 80s De Niro, like nothing is better than that. When yeah. I watch him perform on screen and he just comes alive and goes crazy, it's, he's, he's it's young, just magic. He's crazy. He's got so much energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Complete nutcase. Plays the role he needs to play in the story perfectly. Yeah. It's right. Great. Yes. Um, yeah. And I mean, he, he takes on the three characters in these movies like so well. Like he just goes into them. And there are a lot of similarities between them and some of the struggles, but they're also very, very different characters. Yes. Um, for sure. And and he just throws himself into that and is so versatile. It's it's amazing. So what's interesting to me, and uh the very next year after Mean Streets, before he did any other Scorsese movies, he was in The Godfather Part Two as young uh Beto Corleone, young um Marlon Brando. I know Jonathan has not yet <laughs> That's, well, yeah. somehow seen or experienced the Godfather that films. That is a blot on my but watching history. For but. those of you who don't know, the Godfather Part Two is both a prequel and a sequel to the Godfather. And okay. uh, so the <laughs> shut up, Alex. So the <laughs> prequel part of it, where Marlon Brando's character is younger, is Robert De Niro, which is interesting. Later in at the end, very last scene, a Taxi Driver, where he does a monologue that Marlon Brando did in On the Waterfront. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, but it's interesting that basically it's this performance in Mean Streets that gets him cast as that major role that won him an Oscar in Godfather Part mm-hmm. Two. Yeah, Or maybe and, just nominated for an Oscar. I don't want to... I don't remember. And kind of keeping it in the same realm. Like, it's interesting watching this movie because it's, it's like a little gangster movie. You know, it's about these kind of... the, the bottom rungs of this yes. kind of gangster society as these... Like Charlie is trying to work his his way up, and Johnny Boy keeps pulling him down. Johnny Boy seems to have no aspirations whatsoever. Yeah. But still, in that world, like this is coming from Martin Scorsese, who goes on to do uh, Goodfellas and Gangs of New York, and a lot of films mm-hmm. with this kind of gangster and uh, institutional violence background. And again, he starts it off right here with his uh, with his first um, real film that would tackle a lot of these themes. 
Yeah, um, another actor I uh, really enjoyed the performance of in this movie is David Proval, who uh, is prominent in an early season of The Sopranos. He plays Tony, the bartender. Um, I just think he's really good here. The way his his component in this, which is never uh, uh, all of the tension and like the conflict uh, that comes from. Uh, the lead characters, these four between Michael and Johnny Boy and Charlie, it, he's not directly involved in. But the way that he uh, plays off everybody and tries to calm everything down mm-hmm. and eases it up, um, and he's always smiling no mm-hmm. matter what's going on. I just think I, I really think. Yeah, that there are he, several scenes where he's just behind the bar and this like you know things are starting yeah. to boil up in front of the bar and, and it, he's just like, hey guys, for take a sure. Drink, and you know, calm down. The first time you see him, he's throwing a junkie out of his club. Yeah. So it's yeah, not like he doesn't true. have, you know, he, he demands some respect for himself in his establishment and he tries to maintain that throughout the movie with, you know. But he's he's still trying to keep peace, even in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I think of, that's cool. He's kind of a nice reminder that this world doesn't just exist for the sake of Johnny Boy and Charlie and their problems. That mm-hmm. life goes on around them and that's a living, beating world that yes. exists, that they interact with, but doesn't exist solely for them to have a story in. I I want to point out before we get past it how much I just love the first twenty five minutes of this movie the introduction of these characters, um you know just watching even if you just stick with Charlie you see him in the uh, he wakes up from the dream he goes to the church the the tracking shot that follows him through the club as he's dancing and oh, there's a yeah. the girl he's thinking about I was noticing that, he's that kind of with. stuff because this is the seventies where you know. Camera equipment started getting more mobile is where we start seeing cinema verite and documentary and mm-hmm. stuff. So you can do more complex moves like this. And Scorsese is jumping full on it uh, as he gets started with his career. Yeah. Yeah. And then so you have you you meet all these people and just for a sec, you get just a quick snapshot on your, of their life. So you don't really know much about them at that point. You kind of know their occupation generally. And then they all collide with each other just in that first 20 minutes. And clearly Johnny Boy owes people money, but he's trying to buy these girls drinks, even though he doesn't have any money. And so Charlie's got to take him in the back and they're like, like, hey, where's that money? And he tells this long, convoluted, obviously false story about why he lost the money, how it wasn't really his fault. He had to help his mom out, whatever. It goes on forever. Yeah. Like his card game got got sacked by the cops. He had to run. He didn't have his money. He won all this money. He could have paid it back. And then they have to come back out there and there's the, the conflict there. I don't know. I just think that. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I, had, I watched the first 25 minutes and then a, a couple days later watched the whole movie again with someone else. And so that first uh, 20 minutes have really, has really stuck with me. And I, uh, as his introduction into filmmaking, uh, for the most part, having that, you know, if I'd never heard of this guy, Martin Scorsese, and I just watched that first 20 minutes, I'd be like, this guy knows what he's doing. I'm invested in these characters. I'm invested in what's going to happen here. And... Yeah, I just really want to applaud that and just commend how great his introduction is. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what happened, you know, because he got so much attention. After yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah, so. Yeah, that was the result. Because after um, this, he did Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver also has uh, Harvey Keitel and De Niro playing yeah. off of each other very well as very yeah. different characters. Though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I also want to point out, um, you know, this is something that's very film bradish in nature. Um, and you start seeing around the end of the 60s, start of the 70s in American cinema. But the mm-hmm. self-referential nature of media becomes more and more evident. Um, and, and you see it, a lot of examples of it in Mean Streets where 
the characters go to movie theaters and watch movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And oh, it's, interesting. It's almost very specific movies feels, have specific points. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Towards the end, I think my favorite reference in the film is towards the end. Um, there's this, there's a, a scene, a character's like watching TV or watching a movie in a movie theater. One of the two. Anyway, it's from kiss me deadly. Um, which is a wonderful movie about a guy who it's like him versus all these evil people. And it has a very, again, very much a self-sacrificial tone, a very, um, a very man versus the entire world, a lot of weight on one person's shoulders tone to it. Um, and the style of that film, you can see if you've watched both that film and Mean Streets, uh, definitely influences the latter. That is really cool. I love it when movies do that. Whenever I'll see that, it, it, oftentimes TV, modern golden age TV, you'll do that. You'll see in Mad Men, they'll be sitting there watching and whatever's on the TV is important in some way to the theme yeah. that's going on. And I always like to take that next step into the movie or into the yeah. media and be like, oh, what is that referencing here? How is that part of this? One, one of the other things that's very uh, American new wave about this film is that about this era is when... Um, pop music and you know normal cultural music was making its way into films as an underlying score for them or basically in place of a score and Scorsese uses uh, pop music throughout this film in place of getting like a composer to do the score and stuff like we're going to see with Bernard Herrmann in uh, Taxi Driver uh, but he uses it very specifically there are several points where um, a scene will start with uh, music playing uh, to bring us into it and then as soon as the scene uh, kicks into gear it cuts off and we're just left with the uh, with the foley and the sounds of what's happening in the scene but as soon as that music cuts off you get drawn into uh, those other sound effects even more uh, because you're noticing them much more and it's, it's like a hard cut every time it's just like something happens and then boom music's gone here's what's left in the scene yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the music here is just excellent. All their different, uh, the 70s pop music. The music uh, used up half their budget. Did you know that? Oh, really? The rights to, yeah. I would, I would imagine songs. so, because it's, it's, yeah. it looks very low-budget film anyway, and uh -huh. then they've got all of this, like, so many pop music, and that's not cheap to license even one song, and they've got, like, throughout the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Scorsese always does that. He'll mm. bring in good, really good music. He never uses a score. He always, well, that's false. He doesn't never use a score. But often, during scenes where characters are interacting or something, he won't have a soundtrack in the back. He'll have a song. I guess during the opening titles, like of Raging Bull or during Taxi Driver, he Raging does Bull, use the... He started, yeah, he started using silence and, like, yeah, uh, silence a lot more. But Taxi Driver definitely had a score throughout the whole thing with Bernard Herrmann, who's yes, you know, famous yes, that's composer. True. That but, is uh, that is true. Um, uh, but I also really want to bring up the opening titles. I really like the uh, home videos at the oh, beginning yeah, that gives yeah. you um, a sense of these people's backstory that he uses again in Raging Bull to bridge a gap of uh -huh. when he gets married. And, yeah, like, with gives this you like time eight millimeter jump. footage. Yeah, I really like that technique. Um, because it gives you a lot of. Uh, it's in interesting because it starts the movie on such a light note. Like it's all. It almost. Yes. I was actually wondering while I was watching that if this was behind the scenes footage of the actors in costume. Oh yeah. Like just kind of goofing off, and then mm -hmm. he can pick it out probably is. those scenes. Like to it an could be. Uh, I mean, it might be staged or whatever, but like it just looks like that kind of jovial yeah. kind of. It's a really out good way of giving you information and exposition without any dialogue. 
Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel like exposition. Yeah, um, and we don't get we don't get too much about the characters in that because obviously the situations that they find themselves in are not as uh, happy as the ones that we sure, see in that these streets are mean. Scene. Yeah. But we do get to see our characters and we get introduced. We get introduced to them as a family. You know, again, if we're keeping with the the whole gangster setup. Um, you know, it's a family. All these people are very connected, which makes all of the uh, slights and injustices that they do to each other later on that much more impactful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So um, I-, I mentioned earlier, because I'm looking at, I'm on the IMDb page for Mean Streets and scrolling down its trivia. I mentioned earlier that Scorsese is the one who did the voiceover at the beginning, not Harvey Keitel, even though it's his thoughts. It says that Scorsese felt that using a separate voice to make the distinction between Keitel's thoughts and actions was necessary. Scorsese borrowed this technique from Federico Fellini, he used it, who used mm-hmm. it in E. Vitelloni from 53, which I've not seen. Okay. But yeah, that, but, that is like literally French New Wave coming into yes, American New that's Wave. So, <laughs> that's, that is just the direct I mean, definition of yeah. that. Is it um, E. Vitelloni? That's not French New Wave. That's, that's uh, Italian. That oh, is Italian. Italian. Yes. But European New Wave. Um, and it is, it is like the only, uh, it's like the only film that that director made that was kind of like gang related, crime related. So it's kind of Mm. the mix of that European cinema that, um, uh, the film brats love so much plus gangs. So, you know, plus Italian, you know, these are all Italian, uh, characters and families and stuff like that. Ooh, yeah. this is interesting too. The uh, church in the movie, St. Patrick's Old Cathedral in Little Italy, which I visited, was the location of the baptism scene in The Godfather. Hmm. How cool is that? It's the same church. Did you want to talk about the end? I do want to talk about the end. Um, All right. Warning, guys. Light spoiler section about to happen. And by light spoiler section, I mean we're going to spoil everything. So yeah. here we go. And go. What you got, Ben? Tell us about oh, the Oh, what end. do I have, Ben? Yeah. Okay. So this movie, it comes to a head when Johnny Boy not only now owes this guy Michael, who's their friend, but is also, you know, a connected guy, a lot of money. He then, I he's, guess he's, he's... pretty higher up. Like, he seems higher up on the rung than Charlie is. Yeah. Like, he's, oh, got, sure. he's got strings to pull. For sure. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, De Niro just pulls a gun out on him on a bike. I guess he's drunk or high or so. I don't know what I his deal is at that point. No, like, he's just an idiot. Like, they literally just, yeah, he's crazy. And they say that in the movie. He yeah. is literally insane. So he pulls a gun on him in the bar and is like, get out of here. I'm not giving you your money an or something. An empty gun. An empty gun. An empty gun. <laughs> yes, just just to make a point. God. And the guy's like, okay, well, then I'm coming from, for you. And yeah. he does. At the end of the movie, we have uh, Charlie and Johnny Boy and... Johnny Boy's Teresa. cousin, who is yeah. Teresa, Charlie's girlfriend, and they're are they getting out of town? Yeah, they're running away, and they're running away, but to not Brooklyn fast enough. of all places. Of course, yeah, and uh, like you're running towards a dead end. Why would you do that? Like, go I on. don't. <laughs> so Michael catches up with them, and a hand from the back seat of Michael's car, which, as I noted, is Scorsese's hand, mm-hmm. fires a few shots off. I don't know if Charlie gets hit. Um, I. Johnny Boy, what's yeah, interesting I is... I think they aim for Johnny Boy, and then Charlie crashes the car, and, and so he's all wounded. And, and isn't she having a fit, like a seizure? She or starts seizures? having a seizure. I oh, actually God. was interested in her first seizure. So one of the things is she has That's epilepsy. An, her performance is excellent, by the way. But it's interesting that, you know, this has kind of been talked up since the beginning of the movie. Like, uh-huh. she has epilepsy. It's almost like a Chekhov seizure or something. Like, you're just sure. waiting for her to have a seizure. At the worst moment, And yeah. then... Yeah, uh, Charlie and Johnny Boy are having this argument. She has a seizure in the middle of it, and um, and then they leave. 
They just leave her with some old lady from the apartment and walk outside, and he's like, puts his arm around Johnny Boy, and they're like, let's go straighten this out. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> you're just gonna walk away from this? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't. It's interesting the way that, sorry, sidebar from the ending, that men treat women in all three of these movies. Yeah, that is a, even a the big good point. characters are at, at best dismissive. Oftentimes, yeah. and not concerning, and not caring, and not except for Travis with Jodie Foster, right? Which we'll get into. But he misunderstands the situation. Sure, like, yeah. sure. He, yeah. he doesn't go about it the right Even way. Then, that's pretty, it's a pretty toxic view, uh, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Toxic masculinity, I think, is definitely a a key theme in all three of these. Um, yeah, and Scorsese is accused of that a lot. And I mean, can you think of any fully developed female characters in any Scorsese movie that are like really? I I'm being hard pressed to at this moment think of a strong, dense, complicated female I mean, character that's maybe, not just there to have sex with the male lead. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, or leads the character if we're of the Catherine Hepburn in the Aviator. Um, sure, but that's a real but that's, person. That's How can you not make her yeah, strong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't really avoid that. Um, anywho, back uh, to the ending. <laughs> Johnny Boy is shot in the neck. I think it's pretty bad. I think yeah, shot in several places. Yeah, so like he, hanging out of the car and stuff. Yeah, and so he I, I is presumed dead. I, you don't even know what's interesting about this movie is that it just leaves it just Charlie ends. yelling in the streets with his it's very girlfriend having a seizure, his friend having been shot up, and you don't really know where it ends. Everyone's watching from their windows. They close their windows. It's and kind of that nihilistic American New Wave thing again, like mm-hmm. Easy Rider. I mean, yes. it just has that very like mm-hmm. just downer ending. Yeah, practically. Downer There's not. Man. Uh, I mean, like, Charlie's still alive, which I was actually surprised at when he got out of the car, but, you know, no sure. one's in good shape at the end. No. So, originally, in the script, there's one a scene, there's a scene after this, where um, Tony, David Proval, the bartender, their friend, who is not in the car, the only of the main foursome who's right. not involved, and I think that that's, that's nice, because he really wasn't he involved. He didn't do anything, he yeah. Would have been, I would have been upset if he'd gotten. Um, but, uh, he drives Charlie to the airport huh. to get out of town. And Charlie goes up to the ticket booth to get a ticket to go anywhere. And he looks up at all the places and he looks to the attendant and he says, where should I go? And that was the end of the movie. Huh. But he decided to cut that out. I guess he thought it was more impactful to just have it end here, which does feel like, as much as I feel like I, I, I appreciate the way he ended it, I would have liked to see Tony again. But also it does feel very exper- experimental. Feels like a, mm-hmm. the decision a first-time director would make. Like, let's just end it here, and it'll be crazy. Yeah, and it is. So I would say the the the, the central question of this film is whether or not Charlie's character is going to be able to balance all of these different parts of his life um, without it blowing up in his face. And we end on a scene that is the answer to that question. Which is literally an explosion. Which, which is a resounding no. Yeah, yeah which is um, a resounding going, going, no. So we we have we have the answer to the question of the film. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, and also, is there a sense of that now he has like um, restitution? Now he's like been cleansed for his sins. Now that he's paid for them, is there like a peaceful route for him now? Um, I don't know, and you know nobody can. Know, I mean, but. yeah. Uh, aside from the fact that that Johnny Boy is presumably dead and no longer like part of the equation. Yeah, I, I, I would assume that cut, Charlie's going to be... He's also burned a lot of bridges. Yeah, I'm assuming that Charlie's going to be... As long as Charlie doesn't retaliate, I'm assuming he'll be cool with Michael. Because he's fine, right? Uh, yeah, he's Michael was ma- mainly after... He was annoyed that Charlie kept hanging out with Johnny Boy, but he didn't seem to have any resentment for him. Yes. Uh, at this yeah. point, after what happened in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. 
I would say that that attacked this the the uh, nephew of a big time mafiosa. But there's also oh, the yeah. point um, at the beginning of the film uh, when Michael is talking to Charlie and he's like, "Hey, you know, you uh, you're vouching for Johnny Boy. So what? If Johnny Boy doesn't pay up, are you gonna pay me?" So yeah. Charlie almost. Uh, you know, in a lot of people's eyes, probably takes on Johnny Boy's debt. And so yes. Charlie probably has it even worse at the end than he mm-hmm. did at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, after what happened, yeah. it, no, it comes out. You can't hide what happened at that bridge. Like, his uncle's going to know. His uncle's going to be involved. So I don't I don't know exactly what happens next if he survives. Like, does the uncle pay it off? Um, does the uncle retaliate against the, uh, the loan shark? Who knows? Who knows? And all those are yeah. interesting questions um, if you want to pursue the larger world. Like if this was a TV show, if this was a long format narrative. But mm-hmm. in terms of compact storytelling on a budget, I think we got what we needed. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie's Charlie's arc kind of comes to an end at that point when Johnny Boy dies. Because that's what we were following the whole time. Yes. Assuming he died. Assu- well, yeah. Whenever, yeah. Which I Johnny Boy gets his I comeuppance. Do. Yeah. Um, another good- I don't think I'd be that pissed if Johnny Boy died. I, I really wouldn't nope. be. He got what coming from. Um, another good scene in this movie that is violent is the first hit we see in the men's room of the club. I don't know if it was oh, Tony's club. Oh, yeah. But um, that was very... And a lot of these old 70s movies just give you a view into like how uh, terribly made guns were. Because how many times you have to shoot a person <laughs> for them to fall down when they're already stumbling around drunk is... Really astounding. I mean, assuming um, that the way that this portrayed here is, you know, accurate. Sure, <laughs> sure. That's true. That's true. But I mean, I see it in a lot of seventies movies that at you got to see, see people them quite a few times. At least we see gunshot victims at this point, like respond to the damage. It's on my chest, I must have been shot in the chest. Yeah. Sure. Oh, my hand is on my stomach. I must have been shot in the stomach. That's true. And even in the old, like you know, uh, Cagney movies, the shootings would be like. Oh, uh, and then they fall. Yeah, you know, there's They're not very theatrical. Yeah, yeah, and this that that one well, also, in the men's you know, room is the first Hayes one. Oh, of course, that's that's, that's true. which is basically that crumbled, which is crumbled within the decade before this movie. So. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, okay. Cool. All right, guys, y'all want to move into Taxi Driver? Uh, ben, you want to give us a little breakdown on what Taxi Driver is about? Yeah, let's. I am a really big fan of this movie. Um, hey, Ben, real quick, tell me. Before before you guys get into this, and uh-huh. this is just totally random, yeah. But I listened to the Simon and Garfunkel song "Baby Driver" the other day, <laughs> and now I have that the song going through my head. But the lyrics are changed. They call me Taxi Driver. So <laughs> I just want to oh put God. that out there. Uh, hopefully, that's stuck in your head now. And describe the movie. So Taxi Driver is a movie about a pretty uh, like his like his role in Mean Streets. Robert De Niro plays a pretty mentally unstable guy. But in this but case, now he's he's promoted to the lead. He's promoted to the lead, mentally unstable lead this time. Um, but he's a mentally unstable veteran who works as a taxi driver at night in New York. And um, I don't know. Really great. Again, as you were talking about, well, in in light of exposition, like we see him doing this uh, job interview uh, for this taxi driver position, mm-hmm. and. That is a situation that makes sense for the story and also makes sense for us to get a ton of information in one dump without yes. feeling exposition-y. Yes. So we get a lot of information about him. You know, he was in Vietnam. Uh, he's just he's come back recently. He doesn't really have that much to do. He just wants to work a lot because he doesn't have a lot to do. Yes. Loner yes. that you want to feel sympathetic for, but then you realize how crazy he is over the course right. of the movie. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and so as he's doing these t- taxi drives, and as he he gets to know a local, he's on the night shift too. Woman named important. Betsy, played by uh, Sybil Shepherd, who work who works campaigning for uh, a presidential contender named Charles Palantine, and he falls in love with her uh, in an obsessive way. Um, her uh, colleague Tom, played wonderfully by Albert Brooks here, um, also features in a little bit, and. Um, uh, eventually, the when her, his being rejected by her uh, starts to make him look around the city, and he sees all the the decadence and the sleaze going around, and it just fuels his urge for for violence. Um, he wants to clean up the city like Batman. Yeah, he. And, yeah, uh, I don't know if it's like an urge for violence necessarily. That's like his. That's what he knows. Well, I think that his sexual frustration is urging the violence, yeah. much like Raging Bull. Um, but, yeah, we're gonna see that again yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think a little a little armchair psychology. I think he is feels lonesome, excluded, frustrated, and then is looking for an excuse for yeah. Why and he, he has feels PTSD, which doesn't. And he has PTSD, <laughs> which isn't helping. Yeah. And instead of settling on the problems he has in, in himself, he settles on the problems he sees around him, which are the as he calls them, the dirt and the scum of the city. Sure. And then he turns his violence that way. And so all the while, while he's doing this, he's also attempting to liberate a 12-year-old Jodie Foster prostitute from Harvey Keitel, <laughs> her pimp. Yeah. So Harvey Keitel takes a different turn in this movie as well. Yeah. Um, he, you know, gets a demotion to you know, <laughs> the villain, the, yeah. supporting villain, instead of, you know, uh, protagonist lead. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. Um that's what the movie's about. So if you want to jump into what you responded to, because you just watched it for the first time, Jonathan. I watched Alex all these and movies had seen for the first time. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. So what were what are your impressions having seen it for the first time? So yeah, uh, like kind of departing from the film itself for a second. <laughs> Honestly, what I was thinking, you know, obviously when you see a seminal movie like this later on, mm-hmm. like I have, all I could think of was all the movies that this film has influenced. So I was thinking Leon the Professional. I was thinking mm-hmm. Drive. I was thinking Nightcrawler. Like all these movies that yeah. have so much um, in common thematically, character-wise, um, character dynamics, as in the case with Leon the Professional, of like the assassin kind of like hardened guy and the younger girl. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was interesting seeing all of that. And like this movie pretty much generates a lot of that um, coming out of this uh, American new wave that obviously if we have a wave, it creates a lot of ripples afterwards. Um, so that honestly was my first impression, um, was just thinking about all of these other things that, that came after this. So, okay. So we got to talk about De Niro because De Niro is our, like our, our leading man for this whole episode. Um, this is a ghost De Niro episode. Yeah, we just did that with Alec Guinness last time. Oh, you did? Because <laughs> we did uh, David Lean. So this is our, our unofficial um, Robert De Niro episode. And again, he goes from, uh, like you said, Ben, being this kind of uh, mentally unstable character uh, in Mean Streets who is, um, you know, just wants to watch the world burn, essentially, mm-hmm. <laughs> to being uh, a different kind of unstable in Taxi Driver. But I feel like he almost had a chance to not go crazy by the end. Like at the beginning, you, you get this uneasy feeling about him, um, just based on like what the camera looks at and the way that Scorsese puts you in his mind. Mm -hmm. But it's not until, uh, he gets rejected 
um, which you can't blame him for at all, taking uh, this girl on a date to a really graphic porno film. I think you mean you can blame him. Well, you can't blame her. You can't. You, yeah, you said you can't blame him. Okay, you can't. You can't fault the breakup. Um, but it, like, I feel like up to that point, he was, he had a chance for being rehabilitated to an extent. What was his uh, like? So uh, he takes this girl out, right? What is he antagonizing her by bringing her here? Is it like the graduate kind of a thing where he's upset? Is he just that I clueless? Think, Does he think I she'll think be turned on clueless. by it? I what? think he, he is. He is he disconnected. He's bi- oh, he's a near sociopath. What you think he's a sociopath? Well, clearly, but I mean. I think he's either a sociopath or like very close to a sociopath. He doesn't seem to fully understand. Yeah, he's kind of socially oblivious. Um, and another thing that's interesting is that this movie is also driven by narration in a similar way to uh, Mean Streets, um, except instead of like manifesting itself in prayers, it's these journal entries that he's writing mm-hmm. to himself. And... You know, they they don't have a lot like they're kind of discombobulated sometimes. Like, I don't know. It's interesting to hear him talk about himself, but you don't really get too much about himself through them. Like they're just yeah. kind of rambles sometimes. And how much he just and it's it's almost like he's deluded himself because he, he even in the journal entries talks about or or even in that letter that he sends to his parents or whatever, he talks about these government work and stuff. Like clearly he does not have this actual government work. Yeah, although cool. for a while I was like, does is he really like is there uh-huh. something else going on that's gonna be yeah. like revealed? But he's just deluded himself because mm-hmm. he's gotten mixed up into this whole political thing because this girl that he's fixated on is running this political campaign. Yeah. Um and then, you know, I guess that just in his psyche gets warped into this thing where you know, he tells the president on this chance that that the president gets into his taxi or the presidential candidate gets into his taxi and he tells him, like, we need to clean up the streets. And he's like, oh, yep, that's going to take a big change, but I'll try sure. or like but seeming not not terribly genuine. And so, you know, then that gets warped into, OK, no one's going to do this. So I've got to I've got to take something into my own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all of these elements are kind of coming in from different angles and they just get warped and twisted in his mind, and it leads to the end, mm-hmm. um, the end climax. Um, yeah, which we'll get into. Um, I was talking to you about the theme of isolation with this movie, and how that and how isolation can make a person crazy is another part of this. Mm-hmm. If you're just alone with your thoughts, and you're already prone to that, um, something that really stood out to me before. Uh, again, now I'm looking at the taxi driver trivia thing. This is all very interesting while you guys are talking. Um, <laughs> but I was talking to you about the scene in the shot where he's trying to get a, a second date after the, the porno. Yeah, he's trying to... And he's, he's trying talking to her on the phone, like, yeah. and the camera pans from him on the phone to this empty hallway. And I always saw that it's like, now he's alone again. Here's his isolation. Mm-hmm. Here it says that director Martin Scorsese claims that the most important shot in the movie is that one. And he says that the camera moves to the side slowly and pans down the long empty hallway next to Bickle as if to suggest that the phone conversation is too painful and pathetic to bear. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, like you feel bad for him. Yeah. Like if you were his friend and you heard that, you'd turn away and be like, I can't. I yeah. Can't. Yeah. You know, so something else that's really interesting about this movie that we should get into, you were talking about the political, the, the political candidate, Palantine, and how he was, you know, said he'd clean up these streets and, or, but that wasn't really his platform. So it, mm -hmm. and. Yeah, because um, he, he, what we hear on the radio and everything is constantly like, we're, and, and their little slogan, like, we're going to give, we're going to give power back to the people. Like, yeah. he's not, it doesn't, like his. His platform is not about taking responsibility on himself. It's about, you know, giving it back to yes. ordinary people, which is kind of what he does, what Travis does. Sure, sure. And so what I think he does is in this desperate attempt to get her attention, sometimes people who are not, as Alex was saying, totally socially adept, but they're desperate for a connection. Um, so this girl rejects him, but now he still has to get her attention. So he figures, oh, if I just kill this guy that she's campaigning for, then she'll notice me. And then there'll be yeah. attention or something. I'm not, I wasn't totally clear on that. I'm not entirely sure for his, uh, I mean, about his motivation, but I think that she is clearly connected to why he cares so much about, to the point of killing this guy. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't think he would have any like thought about Palantine whatsoever yeah. because he seems as clueless about politics as he is about movies. But yeah, just through her, this guy gets into his brain and then all these other things get into his brain yeah. and it all just gets warped up. Like, I don't think he's even thinking that, mm -hmm. you know, killing this guy is not going to be a good move it's not for a me social because justice. she, yeah. yeah. And it's not going to be a good move for me in terms of her because she's on his side, you know? Yeah. <laughs> None of it makes any sense, like logically, but sure. I don't think you can consider his motivations logically. And I would compare that to the real life impactful story that is connected to this movie, which is the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan by mm -hmm. John Hinckley Jr., who shot Ronald Reagan, supposedly, according to him, in an attempt to get the attention of 12-year-old <laughs> Jodie Foster. Jody Foster from this movie. What's interesting is Travis in this movie does that to get the attention of a completely different character. It's almost like this guy watched the movie and got confused between the female leads and was like, I'm going to do that, then that'll... But, I mean, that's basically I, what Travis does with everything that so he sees. That's interesting about it, yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, yeah. I don't know how much to tie in. Jodie Foster got a restraining order from him and still has that's one good. to this day. That makes sense. But you know what's really funny is that because of the assassination attempt, the Oscars were postponed for a day. Oh, I And then that. the day of the Oscars, Robert De Niro won Best Actor for Raging Bull. Oh, that okay. Oscar. Yeah. So that's an interesting little... Uh, real life tidbit that most people are probably familiar with but right. don't know the movie well enough to understand the context of the motivation yeah, because yeah. there's literally an assassination attempt on a presidential candidate exactly yeah yeah um, um so one of the other interesting things um that uh i i saw kind of explained in a in a video essay that i can leave a link to but this theme of um this kind of western theme like this almost twisted cowboy uh, toxic masculinity again mm -hmm. in um, and I think uh, the searchers is a big influence on this movie okay. um, according to Scorsese but it's all in kind of a twisted way because you know everything that Travis does and thinks is really twisted uh, in some form or other but you know he puts on the cowboy boots and he's you know always got these guns he's looking for the biggest and coolest gun uh, I didn't know uh, taxi driving made so much money because he buys all the guns. That's a good point. Yeah, where did he get all um, his money? Well, also, what else does he spend it on? I know. Like, that. Yeah, he really has yeah. a frugal budget. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, you've got him as, like, this cowboy persona when he goes into uh, the brothel, and he's also got this mohawk, which 
you know, mm-hmm. Mohawk obviously has Native American implications. And oh, in those okay. Westerns, the Indians, we've talked about this before with um, Stagecoach, are the uh, aggressive antagonistic characters. As soon as he... The others, yeah. Sh- yeah, sh- and specifically the uh, aggressive others and yes. violent others. And as soon as he shaves that Mohawk, you know, he goes on his crazy killing spree. So it's just, it's interesting yeah. layers that kind of go into it. Yeah, yeah. That killing spree, man, that one is... So, well, yeah, now we can, I guess, uh, get get into the I feel um, like there's the so much more to cover, film. though. I think it really goes into, like, the male psyche and the things that give men drive. Um, and uh, his inability to attain affection, his inability, whether he's realizing or not, it or not, that these are the things that are urging him to do all this stuff, because he puts this... SJW mentality into his brain, like I'm doing these things for the good of everybody else, but it's always selfish. And yeah, it's and always because I'm frustrated about my own yeah, stuff. He can't see to the extent that it's his own fault. Everything that happens to him is his own yes. fault. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, jump us into the ending. Um, Spoilers. Okay, so about the ending of this film. So there's kind of two endings. There's all, the ending that I thought it was going to end on, which was the Mean Streets ending, which is where. Um, after uh, Jodie Foster, you know, gets is, gets into his cab at some point early in the film and gets dragged back out again by Harvey Keitel, um, and so then he has this uh, obsession with this girl that we come to know as Iris, and uh, he wants to free her from her life of prostitution, uh, but she's kind of in this trap where she has nowhere else to go. She's like, even if you free me, there's like this is kind of my life now. There's nothing else I can do. Yes. Until uh, the end when all of these things we've been talking about that, you know, kind of are bubbling up inside Travis all burst and he walks into the brothel and just shoots everybody and not in like a cool Jason Bourne way, like in a way where after a couple shots, he after he gets off a couple shots, he gets shot and keeps getting shot over and over yeah. again. Um, and and to the point where he's sitting bloody on a couch and the cops come in and uh he uh you know does this really clearly symbolic like gun to the head finger gun to the head kind of thing yes that's where i thought this movie was going to end coming from american new wave and all that kind of stuff which usually has that nihilistic like bloody uh bloody ending and then it's just done but taxi driver takes it to the next step and we do a fade out and we fade back in on these newspaper clippings um of like uh, this accidental hero story where he becomes nationally famous as uh, you know the guy who rescued this girl and stopped this whole prostitution ring and uh, the girl is reunited with her parents and then we see him again back at his taxi driving job. Well, there's a thank you note from her, from the girl. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Now. I'm, I'm so happy, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, he gets back into his taxi, uh, in his taxi driving job, and um, Sybil Shepard's character gets into his car, and uh, he drops her off, and she's, like, trying to uh, be nice to him again, and just, like, and then at the end asks how much it was, and he clears her record and drives away. Um, but he sees something in the window, in the in the mirror. Yeah. And it's like he's starting to go crazy again. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, there's that very, like, uneasy so, kind of feeling. And there's uh, a lot of, so just yeah. to preface this, there is a lot of conversation around this film about whether that that little extra epilogue scene, if you will, is a real, is that 
part of the actual story or is that a dream? Is that like a fever dream that uh, yeah. Travis is having as he dies? Yeah. Um, and so, all right, guys, let's, <laughs> let's get Every into time it. I watch this movie, it changes my mind. Yeah. I, I'll watch it and I'll think, yeah, this is just his fantasy of how he wants all this to play out is that he saves the girl. She's happy. He never wanted a relationship with her. He just wanted to help her. Because he felt like if I can't, you know, have sex but, with these beautiful women I like, maybe I can just help him in this. But way. he's almost—I mean, like his his little like putting the meter thing. It's almost like a like a little tiny slap in the face. He, no, exactly <laughs> because that's what. Well, that's how guys. Okay, so. But I don't think he's that clever. Now he's this hero, right? And he feels really good about himself, not down on himself. So then, when that girl who used to dismiss you is talking to you and she likes you. He now has this upper hand where he can play like, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't really care. I'm going to blow you off. And, oh, don't worry about it. I got your tab. And uh, she's like not trying to flirt with him, but just being very congratulatory, very like you are such a hero and blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, it's no big deal. Just part of the whatever. Mm-hmm. So he he's able to, um, in a sense, get over that angst inside of him by just being above it all. And um, I don't, I don't know if that's his fantasy that he would just be like, oh, whatever about it, or if that's just actually how. Yeah. If this is the point that it got you to, if you were successful in your vigilante mission, um, would you just feel confident enough to not engage with her and not try to ask her out again or anything like yeah. that? Which she probably would have gone out with him if he'd asked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this point, because yeah. you know. Um, but now it's like, is it? Is it just like a uh, you know? Gold digging or fame digging or whatever. Sure, sure. I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Uh, for me, the part that cinches my call on this is the fact that he gets pissed at something in the mirror, like right at the very, very end. Yes. And that's yes. a bit of imperfection in how he views himself. Um, so I don't – and I just don't see that existing in his own fantasy. So I think it's real. And I think I think the point of the movie is mm. to be a cautionary tale about these people. Um about people who have somehow become ostracized from society and, and view themselves in this weird way that Travis Bickle does, um, if that's even his real name. Um, and so I feel like it's it's more of a message to be careful if he's still around at the end. Like he's, he's you know, he's developed like the secret identity for himself as a hero basically this guys mm-hmm. so that he can just keep being a crazy person and who knows if the next time he uh loses it is it going to be uh bad guys who get killed or is it going to be um some poor other people who get killed yeah cuz i mean there is a quote from Martin Scorsese uh or the writer i can't remember which um about the ending and regardless of whether like it, taking it as as a true event, like part of the point is that Trav- he's not the good guy at the end. Like things kind of turned out well for him, but he's still this ticking time bomb that has a lot of issues yeah. and is going to happen again. Like like Alex was saying, and who knows who's going to be in the crossfire next time because he's not going about this rationally. None of this was uh, a logical, methodical, thought out decision. It's just kind of a lot of stuff happens inside of his head, and then boom. He focuses on one thing and takes it all out on that one thing. And who knows if like if his reasons are going to line up with society's reasons next time. Yeah. I mean, and plus Scorsese characters are just just going to be so explosive. Yeah. Like that the the theme, his his ability, his, his abilities as a director and the theme of this movie just line up very well. And I kind of like it as as like a true event because it's 
almost it's it's almost a subversion of that American New Wave nihilistic ending because we get into we get that almost fairy tale like happy ending like it's almost too good to be true but it's not really because he hasn't made that complete change yet and so you know you're you're kind of taking that uh, ending that's in vogue at this time period and then flipping it on its head and adding a grain of salt to it. So it's it's really interesting. Making it even darker? Yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to some extent, by, <laughs> which is really interesting and uh, puts a lot of levels on the ending, which the ending already has so many levels. Because the idea that our heroes uh, actually can, can be or are villains is almost more scary than, or I would say is more scary, than the idea of like something like Bonnie and Clyde where the villains can be heroes. Yeah, because you know the you know the media that everyone else sees about him is not going to spin it as, oh yeah, he's totally deranged, but uh, he did this one good thing. You know, they're building him up, and people who are reading the papers are not understanding like what a mess he really is. Yeah, you know, I asked you about earlier about uh, dynamic or d- dense female characters. And I feel like both Sybil Shepard and Jodie Foster in this movie have that. Not only do they have um, uh, uh, fully realized, or at least Sybil Shepard has, um, Betsy has fully realized uh, motivation and um, aspirations for herself in her life. She also has this We understand her as like a normal person. Yeah, she has this male (laughs) colleague and friend in Tom, a character, again, Uh who I really like, and I think Albert Brooks does a great job. And the only two scenes, and I think these are important because the only two scenes in the movie that don't have Travis in them are uh, her... Betsy having a conversation with I mean, the Tom only two scenes with her that don't have him in it? Without Travis at all. Oh, without Travis. Yeah, I'm without sorry. De Niro's character. I are, thought you are, meant without Tom. It's the scene with Betsy and Tom where they're talking and being friends, and you see how she can relate to other men in a way that's healthy and a friendship and dynamic, and also the scene between with Iris and Harvey Keitel, her pimp, where they're dancing. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the, uh, that's the only other scene without them. And so you see the worlds of these two characters separate from Travis and how Betsy's is healthy and Iris is decidedly not and is manipulative and yeah. the way that Travis is manipulative to them as well, but not in a way that is directly as um, harmful and malicious, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, you're right. They are They are recognized as full people with full lives that exist outside of the main character of the movie. Sure. Um, which is a step ahead of, uh, like, you know, the, uh, Teresa and mean streets for sure, mm-hmm. who is literally mm-hmm. locked away and can only exist through her interactions with the male sure. characters. In the I film. think, I think we haven't talked a lot about this. I think Harvey Keitel kills it here too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. He's so, I mean, he gets the fun role though. Like if you're an yes. actor going into this, like this is the fun one. You're yes. the bad guy. You're the flamboyant kind you're of. The flamboyant, who gets to have a gunfight at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, Peter Boyle uh, as Wizard. I think he was one of the taxi cab drivers. He's the dad oh, from yeah, Everybody yeah, Loves yeah. Raymond. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of good cameos in here. Really good movie. I feel like there's so much more to talk okay, about. Okay, do this we movie, want to talk but... about Martin Scorsese's cameo? Which is insane. <laughs> it is pretty insane. Yeah, go ahead. And it's, it's kind of a hefty cameo. As far as cameos go, it really like it's, it's it's more of like a minor role than it is a cameo. Yeah, not even because as it, narratively necessary. It is a little bit thematic. Well, and in, ter- in terms of his motive, Travis's motivation after hearing it, it yeah, because it's one of those elements. Like again, all these elements are just going into Travis's mind and getting mixed up and kind mm-hmm. of distorted. Yeah, and this is a big element because basically what happens is. 
Travis gets this fare. This guy drives him to this specific apartment, tells him to keep the meter running, uh, and they see a silhouette of a woman in a window, and he's like, uh, you see that woman? That's my wife, but this is not my apartment. Uh, she's in there with a black man, and we could talk about the the race stuff in okay, Martin Scorsese films. Let's talk about the race stuff. We haven't talked about the race stuff. Let's talk about the race stuff, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Race, Ooh. race warning. Um, well, okay. Finish your thing, and then we'll get into the race. Okay, stuff. so just about the cameo. Yeah. Putting race aside for a second, he's like, "This is the apartment of a black <laughs> man, and uh, she's shooting on me with him, and I'm going to kill her, and I'm going to use this gun, a uh, 48 or whatever it was." And then he goes into like graphic detail about what a 48 does to different parts of a woman's body if you shoot her. I don't know how this guy knows that. but Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. he goes on and on and on about it. And it basically... So that mixed with one of the other cabbies at the beginning of the movie asking if he carries a firearm uh, or some kind of self-defense yeah. puts all of these uh, you know weapon thoughts into... Uh, Travis's mind, which leads to him buying a ton of guns. Just the hostility against women. Yeah, yeah. That's demonstrated here. And it also, I think, I don't think he particularly likes this guy. I think it it plays into his, the mind is, or the streets are so seedy and dirty. Uh Oh my gosh. Not only is, like, she's terrible, she's cheating, he's gonna kill her. It's not only that, it's, it's what tools am I going to use to do that? And this is a tool that has now been described to him as being effective. Yeah. So, what do you think, what do you make of the only other scene of gun violence that I can remember in this movie, I could be wrong, in the, in the convenience store, where he shoots the black mother? Yeah, so, okay, so another scene in the film, uh, right after Travis buys these guns. This is like right after he buys the Very guns. Very convenient. It's probably not often that I, you go buy a gun and then you... Well, it does happen in a convenience walk store. Walk into a holdup and Very you're like, oh, convenient. great, thank I just you, bought Alex. this gun. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Alex. Yeah. It was convenient in the convenience <laughs> store. Um, yeah, so he, he buys these That's guns. That's literally what I'm here for, guys. And yeah. then goes shopping, <laughs> and then this guy tries to mug the, the, the convenience store. He shoots the mugger and then leaves the gun there because he doesn't have a license for it, and the store owner's just like, go ahead, I'll take care of this. And then the store owner picks up, like, a crowbar or something and just beats the crap out of the guy. You remember oh, that part? Oh, he didn't part? die? He didn't kill him, Travis? He wasn't completely dead. He was shot in the chest a couple times, but and regardless if he was dead or not, the guy just starts beating him. Beating a man who's been shot twice. I mean, he did rob, yeah. but I think that there's definitely a... Um, who was the other? I was thinking there was another race thing. It's was in it mean, mean Streets. Streets. It's Mean Streets because uh, um, Charlie sees the uh, African American yes. strip dancer and yes. has this Says, I really thoughts, like her. I'd love these to take thoughts her out, in his but mind. She's black. Yeah, and, and he almost does at some point, and he's following her with the taxi, and then he's like, "No, just keep going. I can't. This is the last thing I need is to be seen with her right now." Yeah. So there is this race thing, not so much in Raging Bolt, but in these two movies, it's just like underlying. Yes. I didn't know if it was like a time period setting kind of thing. Originally, before Harvey Keitel was cast, that character was black as well. Oh, really? So, and then he dies. <laughs> and then he dies. And is a terrible pimp. So, and is terrible. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not great. I'm trying to think. I was talking about he doesn't really have a lot of great, strong female characters. Now that I think about it, does he have any strong black or any minority characters? I mean, I guess, you know, he is a... It's American Italian filmmaker. He makes movies mm-hmm. about American Italians generally, unless he's making a biopic, um, or Irish, or Irish American. So I mean, the white only thing I can think of is, is the uh, 
is a couple of the boxers in Raging Bull that there's no like race. But those are real people. That's a biopic. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's uncomfortable, but it's also a different period of time, so it's hard for me to to uh, make comparisons. Yeah. But I mean, it is something we got to bring up because uh, sure. sure. <laughs> we like to t- t- touch on these things, but you know, it's it's touchy, and and yeah, I'm. I don't know if there's like a defense of like it's the setting, it's New York in the time period, and that's just how it was, or if he was writing it to be like true to that or mm-hmm. what. But you have any thoughts on it, Alex? Oh boy. Okay, so here's here's what I have to say about that. And keep in mind that we're talking about uh, Scorsese's early work. Uh, it gets a little better as it goes. When I say it gets better as it goes on, I mean it gets a little better. Uh, he's very good at relating this white Catholic immigrant American um, sensibility, this New York sensibility. It's something that he understands. You know, I wouldn't pick a um, a non uh, a non Christian, non Catholic um, director to do something like Passion of the Christ. Um, and this is something that he's very good at. He knows this voice. He's good at it. He's going to keep doing it. And it teaches us a lot about that perspective. It teaches us a lot about why toxic mas- masculinity is bad. And those are important things to have. But Martin Scorsese is not the guy who I would go to to give me a deep, complex female character. He's not the guy I would go to to give me a deep, complex um, character uh, who is anything other than white. Um, so... It, but but there are other directors out there who are better at that and who understand that viewpoint. And so when you get to a director who is telling stories that are very deep and personal to them, it's important to have a diverse set of directors around to be able to do Yeah, to compliment that. Because that. when you get into the deep personal ideas, you can only really relate your own perspective. So you need a lot of perspectives in there to really get the most out of it. And you learn more about it that way. Uh, than you do otherwise. And unfortunately, over the course of film history, we haven't had that. But it's getting better, and it's getting better. Um, And of course, you can support people like that by going to see their movie in theaters whenever you can. And if you like the movie, get it on Blu-ray. So, you know, go go get that. Um, Here's my question that I've been thinking about since we've been talking about this. Why didn't he take uh, the campaign manager to get pie and the hooker to the porno theater <laughs> because he doesn't understand because that would have been great dates for the other people it that is interesting that would have made sense ben. that's what that's made sense problem. exactly yeah but the thing that's weird is that it's almost like he wants to go against what society tells him he has to do like society says you take a woman on a date you get to know her you talk to her and then maybe you graduate to the bedroom and he just wanted to take this professional woman to something seedy and take this seedy girl who just gets paid to have sex with he, people he takes, to have a nice conversation, which I appreciate He takes I the campaign manager that, out to coffee first. Let's, I mean, does granted. He, does he? Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. He, okay. They talk first and then after that goes well. It actually goes well. That's why I think there was actually a hope for him at the beginning. Yeah. And he's like, do you want to go see a movie? And she's like, sure, because going to see a movie is a it's normal, normal thing. Yes. And those are the only movies that he sees and he sees couples going there for the wrong reasons, granted. Oh. But that's why he takes her there because... He sees other couples going there. They're the only movies that he sees. He doesn't yeah. know anything about other movies, mm-hmm. so he takes her to what he knows, and he doesn't realize that that's just completely wrong. You know what? <laughs> you know what? The moments like that, mm-hmm. honestly, remind me of um, Rain Man. Like just these moments where he just doesn't get it. You know, Dustin Hoffman was offered this role. 
and oh, turned really? it down because he said Martin Scorsese is crazy. He's like, you're crazy. You're batshit. And <laughs> then he regretted it. Wow. Because it's uh, a crazy, famous movie now. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that but is. But I could have seen I that. Mean, he would have been good in the yeah. role, in the role, but it would have been so different. I can't. Yeah. I don't think I'm I've sure ever seen him be that that um, unchained and hostile, like just that erratic. Uh, yeah. I don't know. He's pretty. He's pretty crazy in Midnight Cowboy. But is he that violent? Uh, no, he's not that violent though. See, I was thinking this is why this movie reminded can... me of Nightcrawler because. Jake Gyllenhaal's character yes. is that cold, reserved person who doesn't really get it. He gets it more than Travis does, mm-hmm. but he also has that incre- incredibly violent, uh, I will do whatever the heck I want to get what I want. But you can understand the motivations of Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler much more. They just happen to kind of follow the same path that and Travis does. And he's more sociopathic than this guy. He's like... Yeah, no, it's much more cold and calculating. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, selfish. You know, taxi driver. He's like still trying to do the yeah, right thing. Yeah, taxi driver. It's all from like emotion. It's all yeah. just like my I can't handle these things, and so I take it out in this way. Um, yeah. Okay, but before this podcast goes too long, we should get into Raging Bull. <laughs> okay, so Raging Bull is um, a biopic. It is about an actual boxer named Jake LaMotta, um, who was very good in the ring. Um, he was called the Raging Bull because he was just fierce. He would uh, just his opponents brutally which is what you want to do in boxing but he also could take a beating himself and we see that in the film uh at some points when he takes a beating that he doesn't have to just to show how much of a beating that he can take um and is that why he does that yes (laughs) because uh remember at the end he or after that he's like you didn't get me down you didn't get me down oh i love that line he's like hey i didn't go down Yeah. yeah um and that's that's kind of the whole point is that in in the ring no one can can get him to the mat. You know that is yes. what he's most proud of. He doesn't win all the matches, no. but he's very proud that he's never gotten knocked out. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so we fo- we kind of follow his life through uh, these alternating scenes between him in the ring and his personal life, mostly focused on his personal life, which is uh, something I want to get to. But um, we at the beginning we see him. He has. I guess a girlfriend that he's living with um, in this apartment. No, the he's married. Wife. Is it a wife? Oh, I yeah, wasn't sure wife. if it was yeah, his wife or yeah. not. Yeah, because she just kind of disappears. Nobody, she nobody just disappears. Scorsese movie without getting divorced at least twice. Exactly. Yeah, I thought exactly. that, but <laughs> yes. she she disappears so completely that I wasn't sure if if it was a girlfriend or not. That's true. It's so, um, which is yeah, kind so of he's the with point. this girl. They are. Yeah, I know. Uh, and I think Jake Lamotta was married like over 10 times or something. Oh, wow. But, <laughs> um, Ooh, that sounds so exhausting. I know, but if he's anything like uh, Robert Zinner's portrayal, you can totally understand why. Um, so we, we start with him kind of in this... Uh, well, the first scene we see of him is him with his wife, and they're just, like, going at each other over breakfast or something. Like, he wants well, we steak, and it's not ready. First. Do we? Oh, well, okay, so yeah. We start with a flash forward of him, um, like in a tux. He's uh, like a comic at a nightclub. He's fat. Yeah, he's like yeah. an MC. He's like coming up with a poem, like on the spot. Yeah. That has like you know traces of Shakespeare and stuff in it. Uh huh. Which is really interesting. And then we get into this other story where we we see him uh, as a young kid at the prime of his boxing career. Um, but he's arguing with his wife over steak and eggs and stupid things. And his brother shows up, Joe Pesci, um, 
which I'm not sure if this is the first Martin Scorsese Joe Pesci collaboration, but I know that he comes up in Martin Scorsese's career. Oh, Joe Pesci. Uh, a lot also. <laughs> um, Everybody, real quick, what's your favorite Joe Pesci movie? One, two, three. Ooh. Home Alone. Casino. Yeah, I have. Good one, Alex. I'm going to say my cousin Vinny. I, I, oh, I just say Home Alone because I love Joe Pesci trying not to cuss. <laughs> yes true. yes yeah and he gets real mad at that kid too yeah yep yep it's but, great but they it's put so in good. like this gibberish like yeah exactly yeah um he's so well cast yeah so i love it oh, yeah so joe pesci and robert de niro are brothers through the use of uh lots of makeup and um we kind of see joe pesci is uh robert de niro's manager uh he's jake lamada's manager um and as we go through, we see just like kind of alternating scenes between uh, these these actual fights that Jake LaMotta had in the ring. And but they're like for a boxing movie. And I'm just going to kind of get into this a little bit mm. for a boxing movie. Boxing is like the least important part. It's almost like uh, it's almost like a score. Like it's yeah. just accents all of the personal stuff at home, which is really the point. Mm -hmm. Um, because Jake LaMotta like starts this affair with this other girl. Um, and then eventually, uh, like I said, his other wife just disappears. And, um, at some point we get this montage, which you were talking about earlier, this eight millimeter montage, the only color footage in the film, by the way, this is a black and white film. That wasn't color. I didn't even <laughs> make the connection. That they switched um, to color for a sec. And, so they get married, uh, his brother gets married, they have like this happy home life kind of a thing, which again, it's interesting that the eight millimeter stuff is like the only happy part of the whole movie. <laughs> um, yeah. I like how he, what he does with the F, with the frames per second too. We'll talk about that at some point, but the way he, Yeah, no, editing is so important yeah. in this movie. Um, and basically we, I, I'm just gonna kinda like fly over view no, that's here. Okay. That's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Jake LaMotta like goes through all these fights. He has a lot of arguments with uh, his wife. He's extremely jealous of his wife, um, yes. even though he literally meets her when he has an affair with her, um, which I think which is, is why he knows. Ever. And she was 15 years old. Oh, oh really? Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, what's with Scorsese and 12 year old girls, 15 year old girls, sexualizing children? Girls come up his in the movies end of this are movie. all about fucked up people. Like, that's the yeah, point. Yeah, I guess that that's true. That's true. And that's what I keep telling myself to to uh, hope that he d it's not his own neurosis. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. But again, yeah. this is a very dark point in Martin Scorsese's life also. Yeah. And so he this is this is how he connected to the film. Like he has no interest in making a sports movie. He didn't care about boxing. He didn't like boxing movies. Mm -hmm. That's why boxing takes such a backseat, I feel like, in the movie. Yes. Because what it's really about is someone who is very good at what they do, but can't keep their personal stuff together. And that is what that's where Martin Scorsese was at that point. It to me, to me, it's the best film I've ever seen about the low self-esteem, sexual inadequacy, and fear that leads some men to abuse women. Yeah, I or mean, that's, anyone or and, abuse their friend, be abusive generally. You know, the fact that you know what he does is beat people for a living. Yes. Oh you God, know? that scene where she was just talking like, "Oh yeah, this guy you're finding seems pretty popular. He's a good-looking guy," and he just beats and the shit out of him. Of and he doesn't look at those mobsters who was like, "Oh, he's not pretty more." He looks straight at his wife, like yeah. to make a point. Yeah. Um, so as yeah. he goes through this, um, he's abusive to his wife. Uh, he gets his brother to follow his wife because he's jealous of her. He beats up his brother in front of his family. 
Right. At the table, yeah. His brother... Um, sorry, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. So sorry. No, there's right. uh, there's a lot of... He beats up pretty much everyone in his personal life. That's <laughs> not spoilers. Um, so his brother follows or ends up by his wife at a nightclub. Um, his wife has like, just gone out to be with friends. Um, and his brother beats up one of the guys that she was with. And like really beats him up. His brother's not even a fighter, but he like no. smashes yeah, no, him in Pesci's a car. He's a little door guy, but every movie I've seen him in, he he can he, yeah. he'll take a he beating, but he out. can dish one out too. Yeah. Um, and so eventually, at the so also in his personal life, he starts eating more, which becomes a big deal. Uh, he gets out of shape. He um, eventually just gets out of boxing and goes into entertainment. He becomes a comedian, which um, is where the movie actually starts. It starts there, and then it brings us back to there. Yeah. Um, and so he becomes this comic. Uh, his wife leaves him, but, like, you f- <laughs> you feel so bad for her because, like, she had to make this this plan to get out because there's no way. And that's part of the conversation of this uh, film about abusive relationships is there's almost no way out. Like, at, uh, at some point, you... Like, it's really hard to get out of that kind of relationship when you're being overpowered like that. Um, so his wife leaves him. Uh, we just see, like, glimpses of other women that he's with. Like, he puts a woman into a cab. It's like, I'll be home later. But we don't know anything else about her. Um, that's at the end. Yes, so. that's that's oh, where okay. we're at now. Yeah. Like, And they're performing together. They're like an act. It's like he comes, he opens yeah, her, her. Just, like, kind of bouncing around nightclubs and that kind yeah. of thing. Until one nightclub that he's at that he actually owns for a little bit, it seems like, and he's doing all this stuff. Yeah, he's hanging out with these girls. Him. Yeah, and uh, oh, that's right. He's he opens that one, and then after this whole thing where, uh, which actually happened, he is arrested for introducing these guys to a fourteen-year-old girl, um, and then he's just kind of like in these slummy nightclubs and stuff like that, uh, and that's kind of where we leave him. We leave him. Uh, reciting to himself in the mirror um, this kind of poem that he's put together and then he ends with this uh, this monologue like you said earlier from uh, Marlon Brando's monologue from On the Waterfront uh, about I could have been a contender I could have been somebody and it's just like mirrors the whole yeah. story that we just watched which is insane yeah a lot of people talking into movies yeah well what's interesting is that Again, this is the film brat generation. These are the people who grew up on films. One of the first generations of filmmakers who were just immersed in film theory. Like we've talked about, uh, <laughs> we've talked about, um, you know, Soviet montage and stuff like that, where the Russians would take film that had already been made and like deconstruct it and build it from for themselves. But mm-hmm. they were figuring it out on their own. These people were being taught film. They were studying film. Um, not because they had to in order to make film, but because they had to in order to make better film. And so that's why we're seeing so much experimentalism um, and uh, so much referentialism because these people just, like, they just know film. And so to uh, make their own films more impactful, they reference other films that have impacted them. Uh, And so we get a lot of that in all of these films and in a lot of um, uh, American New Wave film. Well, let's get into Robert De Niro again. Um, and and uh, the original um, Christian Bale of changing your body shape for a yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because he goes from scrawny, scrawny boxing kid to uh, 
overweight, older guy. Like, and it's not through makeup. There is some makeup like done to uh, his hair and his nose and stuff like that that you can tell. Um, but you know, by the end, he is just a slobby, slobby dude, and that's what he had to do for the role. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's that's what makes this film so. That's one of the things that makes this film so effective is that you can actually see uh, like his health kind of follows the entire path of his career and his relationships. So I have a question for you guys. Yep. Ask, ask me a question. Well, why is this movie in black and white? Ooh, good question. I think that it 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 makes the violence... I don't even want to say it makes it less violent, but I think that the scenes... Having the scenes in the ring be black and white is definitely powerful and definitely brings a certain edge to it there's no blood because of that. I mean, there is, but it's not, does not appear to be as bloody as it actually mm-hmm. is, I should say, despite the amount of cuts and blood spews. And, um, um, so I think that. it kind of mutes the violence, and I think it also, I don't know. Well, go ahead. There's, there's one thing that I was thinking throughout the film is that uh, I don't remember exactly the timeline of Jake LaMotta, but... This is the era where his fights were broadcast on TV in black and white. And there are several cuts that like cut to a little mm-hmm. 4x3 TV screen. Yeah. So it kind of mirrors that style that people were used to watching boxing in at that point. And so you could just do the boxing scenes in that black and white. But one of the major points of the movie is that the the fights in his personal life are just as intense as the fights in the ring. So yeah. making that consistent across it kind of brings those two things together because, you know, at some point when he's beating up his brother, you're hearing the same sound effects that happen in the ring. Like mm-hmm. it is really connecting those two parts of his life. Like he almost can't switch it off. Like when he's going to attack someone for whatever reason, he's going to go all the way. Um, and so, yeah, I think keeping the whole thing in black and white just kind of keeps that cohesion there. What's yeah. your thoughts, Alex? Do you have like an objective reason that someone said like, "Here's why we made it in black and white," and you were just no, 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 no. I just don't know. I I just genuinely don't know. That's why I asked. Um, but it was a. It's, I mean, it's clearly a strong choice because this is 1980. People, nobody makes movies in black and white anymore. Sure, yeah. It's clearly a creative I mean, there decision. Was, yes. There, there was a little period where color was out, and color was only used for like adventure movies and comedies. Mm-hmm. But that's that was long gone by 1980. Oh yeah. Sure. So. This is a clear, clear, solid choice. And I've thought about uh, maybe it's he wants to set it in the 1940s, 1950s when this was shot. Maybe it's a film brat thing where he just likes the aesthetic of black and white a whole lot. Uh, Maybe it's connected to how this character sees uh, sees the world. He only sees things in black, white and when he sees red. Um, Oh, yeah. Because the title card says Raging Bull in red. Yeah. 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 And I think I think he's very he's not he, he doesn't perceive the world with a whole lot of nuance over the That's course true. of the film, and it, it's it's kind of part of what leads him to be such an angry person. Um, but the uh, the entire uh, movie is kind of disproving to disprove that. Hold on one second. Oh, Alex is looking up the official reason. Oh, that's good. While you're looking that up, what did you think of the girl? Her performance. Uh, Kathy Moriarty plays Vicky LaMotta. What did you think of her? I've never seen, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. She, um, oh, uh, no, analyze I think that. her and Joe Pesci were uh, no names uh, at this point. I think that this is like both of their breakout films. Okay, interesting. Um, 
I thought she was very good. Yeah, for a no, girl who a was child. nineteen or twenty playing a tw- playing a fifteen year old at first, and then did they she, say that she's fifteen, or is that just yes. who, what it was in the yeah. in real life? Well, at the end, they're talking about some girl who's fourteen years old, but that's that's a totally that's completely thing. different. Totally other thing. Yeah, they they say she's fifteen. She's nineteen or twenty years wow. old when they're playing it. But what's remarkable to me is the way that she can fully uh, uh, get into the role of an older housewife who has been abused and very realistically yeah. be bouncing off him. And like, no yeah, pun those intended. little those little flinches yeah. and those movings move moves away. Uh, what I want to know is there's a scene whenever he comes to get the jewels off his belt. I don't know why he didn't just sell the belt. That probably is a lot. Which is more what valuable. the guy wanted. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's his pride. Like he can't give up the belt. He yeah. can only get rid of the jewels on it, but he can't get rid of the belt. Yeah, he can't give it up. Um, when he's hammering it, and she's like, she was it. seventeen when they made the film. Wow. The point is, at the age that she were making this movie, yeah. she had to play a fifteen-year-old to a, how many? How many years does it span? A lot. <laughs> uh, to a lot. Yeah, exactly. And she does that effortlessly in a way that never feels false. Mm-hmm. What I was saying is, so during that scene when he's hammering on the table and the dishes fall down, uh-huh. and he's like, "What's the matter with you?" But and they're like divorced at this point. He still has a thinks he has the right to like yell at her like that. Yeah. And she's just like, "Get the fuck out of here" or something. And it almost feels um, uh, like improv. Uh-huh. It almost feels like they can play off with each other so well at this point. And I've never, I'd never seen her anything else. She clearly was a child actress, and I just thought she killed mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, one so of the other can, interesting scenes was the one yeah. uh, before they get divorced when uh, the newspaper people come to talk about him retiring, and they're like, what do you think about your husband retiring? And uh, she says, like, one sentence, and he's like, are you done? And <laughs> she's like, okay. Yeah. And she just, like, stops, and it's like, oh, man. It's just like, yeah. there are scenes where like you're hit over the head with the abuse, and then mm-hmm. there are scenes like that where it's just like, it just permeates everything in their lives. Well, another interesting dynamic is the way, is the jealousy between the two brothers. Like, that's the, or his jealousy. Specifically his, yeah. Yeah, but I, there's an interesting, you know, she's set up as this character who doesn't put out. Who's like, yo, you gotta really take time to get to know her before she's gonna, but then it appears that on his first date with her, there's that's actually a really good scene like that slow kind of seduction where they're sitting there having a drink do you want a drink and then he hands her the water instead drinks the water it was on so his lap. it was almost so obvious to be cringeworthy like yeah you know well, and it was it was very um um lingering it yeah. just it didn't cut from this scene to that scene it was just like here is the full uh real time amount of time it took for them to uh-huh. get to the apartment get the drinks sit down um and of course, he starts kissing her, and they walk away, and then there's the picture of the two brothers together. So the way that plays out, is, see, I first thought it was going to be the other way around, where Joe Pesci would be jealous of him because Joe Pesci had taken her out before. What's his name? Joey had taken her out before, and um, I don't know how much of of Jake's jealousy towards Vicky is warranted, is is rooted in something that is. I saw it as Legitimate. almost entirely unwarranted. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. I think like, so too. Do you think that she actually cheated on him by the end? No, no. By the time that he chases down Joey and, and beats him up in front of his family, that by that point, I don't think she cheated on him with any of the mobsters, with the brother. Yeah, I don't I think, think we have at I least, don't think, I don't think anything have any reason happened. to believe that. Yeah, there's no yeah. reason to believe that. Yeah. She says it just because that's the only thing he well, wants as to a hear. Fuck like, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because she says no. And then, you know, there's like, 
even like regardless of the truth, he's not going to take anything else except for yes, I did. What yes. I mean, that's what she says. What do you want to hear? What do you want to yeah, hear? Yeah. That's all he wants to hear is what but that's he wants never to hear. the right thing to. No. If a guy is pointing a gun at you and you didn't kill his family, it's like just tell me you killed him and I'll be fine. Like, just, right. nope, wasn't me. Wasn't me, man. Yeah. So. Uh, Which makes that scene just so much harder to watch. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you guys want to know why this film is in black and white? Sure I do. do. Okay, cool. So it seems like there's uh, multiple reasons why. Part of it is that um, all of the uh, old-timey sports footage was in black and white at this point. Um, so uh, even boxing matches, boxing matches that were aired on TV would still be in black and white. Um, or uh, like especially old ones. And uh, Scorsese kind of wanted to go for that feel. Part of it, I think the biggest part of it, was that Scorsese kind of already had this uh, archivist mind about his films going on that would kind of come back when he start starts the Film Archival Project, um, an organization that he's known for today. Um, but he, he knew that color stock at the time was prone to fading um, quite radically, and he had the idea that he wanted this film to really last. Um, and going into what Jonathan said about uh, this, he thought at the time that this might be his last movie, uh, considering the way direction his his life was headed, uh, I can I can understand why he would want his last movie uh, to last. Uh, yeah. Also, there's another story that it doesn't seem like a very good reason to me, but it's interesting. So Scorsese was shooting some eight millimeter color footage of De Niro in the boxing gloves at the time. Wouldn't it be the color that De Niro's boxing gloves were? You know, but also like he kind of wanted to set this film apart from all the other dramas that were happening that yeah. year. Um, in this like way in like this proto Oscar bait kind of way and I don't think that affects the quality of the film at all but it, it's a trend that would become more and more prominent and if you want to learn more about that trend go listen to our Oscar bait episode it's episode 8 and there's also an interesting thing like going along with the idea that uh, the boxing matches and sports footage would have been in black and white at that time that's how uh, audiences would have received it that that kind of starts um, – we, we already saw that uh, Martin Scorsese trying to emulate you know, the viewing experience that an audience would have had at the time period when we watched Aviator. And we were constantly watching this, uh, this color process develop and develop and develop as the years went by. Um, so that's, that's an interesting tie-in to the only other Scorsese movie that we've talked about on the podcast. Um, but along with the use of color, we can also talk about the use of sound because whereas Taxi Driver had this really iconic score by Bernard Herrmann and um, Mean Streets had this pop music uh, running throughout the film, um, this film has a little bit of a score. It has music in very small pieces here and there, but a lot of times all we're hearing is uh, the foley and the sounds in the scene um, and even taking those out, uh, there, I can't remember who, but someone was kind of, um, uh, mentoring Martin Scorsese into like removing as much sound as possible to focus the scene to the point where there's even, uh, the, the scene where Robert De Niro kind of eggs on that, uh, boxer to hit him like as much as he can. And yeah. he just takes the beating. There's no sound at all. Like he just goes silent. We do the, the Hitchcock zoom on him, which is a brilliant brilliant shot mm-hmm. um and then we just go into that beating and it's it's crazy but it's is really powerful because of that lack of sound and it just like you just take this deep breath like robert de niro would have and you just take it with him 
Um, and also, we should talk about uh, the use of editing because as a boxing movie, obviously editing is very important. Any any boxing movie, like the way that you cut the punches and stuff is is kind of 90% of where you get your impact from um, because just kind of watching it like you're watching a boxing match is, is not going to get the full impact, um, no pun intended, that you need. So the way that you cut... Um, you know, the close-ups of the face, the wide shots, the cutaways to blood or mouthpieces and stuff like that um, is all very specific. And this film, um, I believe, won for that editing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they're just like every... And the other thing about the editing is that almost every personal scene that ends on a low or quiet note, sometimes before the scene even fully ends we jump into a punch, like a punch in the face, mm -hmm. and it just smashes into, back into the ring, uh, and that's how we, we cut in between these two parts of his life. Um, we're just like constantly hit in the face, and that's why it's, I say that the, the boxing scenes almost feel like a score, because they're, we're following these, these personal scenes, and then they're just like little snippets. Even uh, like in the montage of the family stuff, we just see like, to the point where it would just be like one photograph of a fight. But we cover almost all of um, Jake LaMotta's actual fights kind of spliced into this story of his life. But, you know, we're not like following the whole round with them. We're seeing like little snippets of the fights just to kind of pepper throughout and just remind us like this is also what he's doing throughout all this. Um, it's not at all like other boxing movies like Rocky or something where we're focused on, you know, his training, like how he's doing in the ring, like what he's like tactically strategy trying to do to win these fights. Um, we are solely focused on the fact that he is fighting and the fact that, um, you know, he's taking these beatings and taking this pride in what he does and he's very good at it. Um, but that's kind of the only place where he finds fulfillment at some point. Yeah, I think visually one of the most effective strategies that Scorsese uses is the use of slow motion. That oh, sort he does of that a lot. Yeah, it sort of suggests a heightened awareness. The way it does in Taxi Driver, just like in Taxi Driver, when Travis sees like the sidewalks and all the streets um, of New York in slow motion, here he sees Vicky, his wife, so intently that it's almost like time is expanding around her. I don't know. He uses really subtle speeds though, like 30 or 36 FPS. And we get to internalize that. And it, um, I don't know, we feel the tension of his narrowed eyes and his mounting anger as he gets just triggered by his paranoia. It's interesting, there's a, there's, there's a couple other connections with, psychologically, I feel like, with Taxi Driver that I wanted to get into. Um, you know, the, the term that Freud coined, which is the, like the Madonna whore complex, the, his character in this movie seems to have some sort of ambivalence to. And it's, it's almost like they're more, De Niro's character in this sees women as more like uh, unapproachable, like virginal ideals until they get um, sullied or, or disparaged by physical contact often with him and after that they become suspect now you know um it's very destructive the way he views women because as soon as he gets into an attachment with them he's suspicious of them 
Yeah, because he has destroyed his own ideal of them himself. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, the thing is, he never catches her like we were talking about, but he beats her as if he had. Yeah. And then his suspicion confirms his the the same yeah and it's kind of like both of proof those, of her guilt yeah yeah both of those uh that dichotomy is present in her character in this whereas in taxi driver there basically were two perf- personified we have the madonna and the whore both, yes both that he interacts with differently mm-hmm. um oh oh one more thing one more yep thing. um i said i wanted to bring up the aviator and specifically yeah. in relation to this because i was thinking earlier today so the aviator didn't totally work for me. I don't know what you guys said about it when you watched it. I like the movie. I think it's well mm-hmm. done. I think the performances are good, but there are creative limitations to a biopic because the the narrative is there for you. These are mm-hmm. real people who things actually happen to, so you're constrained. And hey, man, we have a whole episode on it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you mentioned, <laughs> and um, I haven't heard you guys talk about it, but I felt that in uh, when I was watching. Uh, the Aviator about uh, Howard Hughes. Yeah, where I felt the constraint of like, you can't do anything with this. With Raging Bull, I never felt that once. And this is also a biopic. And mm-hmm. I feel like it excels in turn. I, this might be the best biopic I've seen because it doesn't feel like I'm watching a history lesson. It feels like I'm watching an artistic achievement that happens to be a true story mm-hmm. because this movie is about all men, all people, all the, you know, it's very internal like that. And most biopics don't take it to that level of making it internal. It's just like, here are the events that happened but and it's all, transpired in this It's order. also kind of boiled down. And the two conflict or, or the two aspects of the story um, parallel each other so well mm-hmm. that it feels scripted. Like yes. the fact that he had anger management and he's a boxer, like just lends itself to building these themes that play off of each other without having to take too much liberty because, mm-hmm. you know, all you have to do is write scenes of him getting mad at his wife for no reason and uh, and beating her. Yeah. And juxtapose that with him beating guys in the ring yeah. or beating up guys that she's talked about in the ring. Sure. And it, it kind of falls into place. Not to say, like, it's still ex- extremely well done, but... You're right. The just the mm-hmm. the events that he has to play with lend themselves to that narrative flow. Yeah, already. Kind of moving into the overall, but another person I want to shout out to is Frank Vincent, who plays Salvi, who's the mobster that uh, Joe Pesci's character beats up with the car door. Oh yeah. Um, who was also on Sopranos. There's a lot of Scorsese influence in The Sopranos, which mm-hmm. I've told you guys before is probably my favorite show. Um, and what's interesting is his character Salvi. Oh no, excuse me. Frank Vincent's character in The Sopranos does not ever uh, uh, cross paths with the character that David Proval, who I mentioned uh, was yeah. in Main Streets yeah. and also in Sopranos, but they both inhabit this role that is recurring in Sopranos of kind of the monster of the week, but it's more like monster of the season, uh, okay. where they're the bad mobster uh-huh. character that comes in and is causing trouble that they have to get rid of, and they both do that, David Proval early in the series and Frank Vincent later in the series, and so I think it's interesting that they bring in those characters, and near the very end of the series, in the episode where uh, the confrontation between Frank Benson's character and our main cast comes to a head. There's a scene where they're talking about what are we going to do about this guy? We got to take care of him. And as that's happening, and he's bonding with his guys, the theme from Raging Bull is playing, uh. and they like kind of mock mind box with each other a little bit after the movie. So there's that meta commentary, like we were yeah. talking about about the self referential. Like they know that this guy played a mobster in that other movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we're <laughs> referencing it vaguely awesome. here. So um, I don't know. I think that's cool. Yeah, I love when when. TV has like a, a fun cameo. Yeah. They bring up their like yeah. their famous roles. Early. Okay, so yeah, overall notes. Um, 
one of the just the first things that I put in here, which doesn't really apply to Raging Bull, but both Taxi Driver and Mean Streets have that narration going going through them, which mm-hmm. is interesting because narration is not a very common thing, and to some extent, it's almost become tabooed uh, in mm-hmm. modern film to the point where, like, like this idea of you have to talk your audience through your movie, um, mm-hmm. but it's used in such an interesting way in these two films that it doesn't feel like it's holding your hand. Like, especially in Taxi Driver, it's almost just like bringing you into this twisted world of, of Travis where you, you don't even know what he's thinking or what he sees of other things. But one of the interesting things I was thinking about the, the narration of Mean Streets is that it kind of switches who the narration is targeted at. There are times yeah. when it feels like the narration is, well, there are times when the narration is definitely prayers, so he's talking to God. Yeah. There are times when the narration is uh, to himself. Journaling, yeah. Just, yeah, mental notes. And there are times when it feels like it's to the audience. Like the first line, you don't pay for your yes. sins in the in the church, you pay for them on Giving the Giving you a theme to wrestle with while you're watching. Yeah. yeah, so, but there's no, like, clear division of, like, who who the narration is talking to. It just kind of like jumps back and forth um, between them throughout. Uh, Did you guys find that drawing? Do you think about that at all while you're watching it? It's a very Um, Scorsese thing because he uses it in a lot of films. And and you're right, Jonathan. This is one of those things where uh, uh, it is is very in vogue right now for modern-day screenwriting classes to teach you that narration is a very lazy thing to do and it can be a very easy out for an untrained writer who is looking for an easy out. But I think Scorsese films prove that you can use it inventively and you can use it as a way that increases the value of the movie rather than something that becomes a crutch. And I think in the two uh, films today that feature narration, it's used to expand the thought of the characters in a way that's significant to the theme without just being a way to convey exposition or to convey emotion that wasn't already being conveyed visually. So the other thing about all three of these films is that New York plays a huge role in them uh, as a setting. And these are not, by a long shot, the only films that uh, Martin, Martin Scorsese made set in New York mm-hmm. um, and it just it just takes on this this whole life of its own um, I mean that's that's his setting that's where he's from that's where uh, that's what he knows and he uses that to be just like a playground for these characters with all of these different uh, vices and dynamics and stuff like that um, and Alex I know you are fairly familiar with New York um, what, yeah, what was your impressions is, is live on streaming the with us from New York right now aren't you buddy I am I am currently in New, in New York, and I have lived here for two years. One year in Manhattan, one year in Brooklyn. Um, I I mean, like New York is so different than it was in, uh, during uh, the time period that you see in um, in Scorsese films, and it's so like in Mean Streets, like that's a period of time where New York is basically bankrupt, um, and it is it is running out of money. The city, the the subways are in just a terrible state of being. Um, people are moving away. This is the period of time where the Bronx is burning, um, and and so like you you have this space for criminal activity to move in, and things become very very cliquish, very communal, very very much a series of um, neighborhoods all just trying to take care of themselves. Um, 
in a way that you know is you know neighborhoods are still very tight tightly knit to a certain extent now but it isn't as scrappy like the 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 modern new york city is very is doing very well for itself like it's it has a good tax revenue it's not bankrupt it is taking care of its people it's expanding its public transportation system um but it's nowhere like what it was but it has such a such a texture to it in these movies like like you feel these movies can't really take place anywhere else you know like yeah, new york sure. is integral to kind of what's going on and and like you know in raging bull how cramped their apartment is at the beginning mm-hmm. um in taxi driver uh you know the way he's able to just drive around at night and see a bunch of people but still feel so alone yeah. but aside from all that um you know, Martin Scorsese is still making movies like these. We talked about some of his very early things, but he has a legacy that um, that lasts he's still making good movies that are like right. profound and like yeah. people are noticing. And no, Silence. Um, Silence I mean, is not my Raging, favorite. Literally, I think literally both Raging Bull and Taxi Driver are in the AFI Top 100. Oh, I think he yes, has three. And, uh, he might I, I think Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas is too. But um, yeah, I mean. Wolf of Wall Street, Hugo, even which was much lighter than a lot of his other sure. films, but it well, was he's also a grandpa now, you know, also self referential. Look, look, look at Spielberg and yeah. how he changed, yeah, you know. Um, but Hugo is extremely uh, self referential to the film industry. It's about Georges Melier, um, one of the founders of film. Period. Um, yeah, and you know, the year before that, he comes out with Shutter Island, which Shutter is an Island. adaptation of a horror story. Right. So that you know, his range is still there. Aviator uh, in two thousand four. He's got another biopic. You know, he he has such a wide range of films. He's got like four other movies that he's planning to make. Yeah. Like this guy is not slowing down. We've talked about filmmakers who did not slow down. We just talked about David Lean, who was planning to make films while he was sitting on his deathbed. Um, and Martin Scorsese is up there. And like you said, Alex, he's got maybe more critically acclaimed films in AFI Top 100 than almost any other director, American or otherwise, uh, you know, his legacy is going to live on. And, uh, you know, these are just kind of his where he started, where he's jumping off from, and it just, it just keeps going from here. I'm so glad I got to talk about these movies with you guys. Yeah, I no, really great. like dissecting this stuff, and I really like going into the... Uh, the layers and the density of film. There's not enough density in film these days, and so sometimes you have to uh, go back a little bit uh, to find it. And I'm I'm glad he's making more movies so I can still do that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And these films have so much in them that mm-hmm. you know, you know, you can keep watching them and you can keep figuring it out. Um, all right, but shall we get into what we're going to talk about next time, Alex? Something a little bit lighter. Um, Hopefully, God. <laughs> We're going to be doing a theme week, not a director week. We are going to be talking about different adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories throughout the ages. Uh, Specifically the- different representations of the character of Sherlock Holmes, who is one of the most prevalent characters throughout film history. We'll be starting with The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939, starring Basil Rathbone. One of my favorite old-timey actors. And then we'll be looking at Jeremy Brett from The Sign of Four in 1987. And then we'll be watching A Study in Pink. The episode, which is basically a miniature movie from 2010, starring uh, Brittle Stick Cumberbund, uh, which is available on Netflix. Yeah, we've done. So uh, Jeremy Brett is famous for doing a um, a Sherlock Holmes TV show, 
but uh, The Sign of Four is actually a TV movie part of that. And we've done a TV movie before in Batman 66. But yes, I think A Study in Pink will be the only technical TV show episode that we have covered so far. And I'm excited because Alex and I are both big fans of the character of Sherlock Holmes uh, from uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that representation has changed over the years. That is really cool because that's a character that they, people like to bring back. Yeah. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. I am at B Angrisano1. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Bring me back. We'll talk about The Godfather or something. (laughs) Clearly, The Godfather hype train is not this podcast, so I'm not going to. Hey, I've seen part two. Wait, Jonathan, have you not seen part one? I've not seen any of it. He hasn't seen any of it. That's what I'm saying. He makes this podcast. He has 66 episodes. Never even seen The Godfather. Wow. Um, I, I, why do I mean, there's plenty of movies, movies I haven't Jonathan. seen. I'm one to talk, but still, it it's my favorite movie. And I apologize for everything. Best movie, so. Watch some movies, dude.